and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 100, recorded on April 7th, 2019. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe, and happy episode 100. We kick it off with Chef celebrating our episode, obviously, by going 100% open source. At least, that's the headline. That is the headline. And it is true that now Chef, instead of being open core and having a bunch of proprietary add-ons, everything that they do will be Apache 2 licensed. So it's all grown completely 100% open source. However, the binaries are going to be paid for only. So this is very much the Red Hat model. Yeah, so to clarify that, the, you can get the binaries for free, I believe, but you cannot use them for commercial use without paying. But like in the case of RHEL, the source code is available, so you could grab the source code, build it yourself, but then in that case, you can't call it Chef. You have to call it something else, like Joe's orchestration. Uh, and maybe just as a background for people, if you're not familiar, Chef is... A, well, it's a company, but it's also an open source project. It's it's one of the major configuration management systems on Linux and now also Windows. Uh, it's built in Ruby and Erlang, and uh, it's one of the popular orchestration management suites. And this is a very competitive market. And so I think Chef is trying to differentiate themselves here. And the RHEL model has been proven successful. Well, just last week, we talked about how they hit $3 billion, Red Hat, in revenue. So obviously, they're doing something very right. And so it's not a surprise to see other companies following their model. Chef's talking up a big game here. They say their development process is going to go more open. They'll share more details about their roadmap, feature backlogs, and other future product developments. And all of Chef's commercial offerings will be based on the same open source code everybody else has access to. Um, and they say, you know, this is solving a lot of problems for us, one of which being it was just getting really difficult for Chef to explain which parts of the software were open source and which were not. And now this is solved. And you've seen Redis and MongoDB all try to take different stabs at this kind of problem recently. And their solutions sort of got grief, right? They were, they were going more closed down, whereas Chef has gone the other direction here. Yeah, this will satisfy the FOSS zealots, for want of a better word, the people who want everything to be completely open source, free software. But by enforcing their trademark policy, they're really protecting their revenue stream here. So it's, I think, a very sharp move of them because it means that they're not going to get the blowback that the likes of Redis Labs and Mongo got, but at the same time, they are protecting their business. It seems to be a very good strategy. I think worst case scenario here is that the distributions that have Chef in the repositories are going to have to rename that to, you know, something else. And maybe the community will come up with a new name that sounds familiar, like Kitchen. I don't know. What would you, <laughs> I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if we could predict what it's going to be right here on the show? <laughs> I, I, but I'm just not familiar enough with uh, the terminology in the kitchen. But there might be something like this because, you know, it's based on recipes and all. That's like the whole vernacular. So if, if distributions could come up with a different name, then I think that solves the biggest problem we have now because according to the license, they are now, it's Apache too. They can distribute as much as they like. Just don't call it Chef. Well, also, they do have to remove any references to Chef in the source code. Right. And branding, any branding. Yeah, which isn't an insignificant job. Every time they release a new version, someone's going to have to go through and remove all that. I suppose you could probably just script that fairly easily, but it's something that they have to think about, and it's a bit of a headache for the distributions. But certainly not an unfamiliar problem. We've seen this even with Firefox, of yeah. course, 
there's lots of, I mean, look at CentOS and Scientific Linux. I mean, this is, this is something that is a known domain, but I'm not trying to take away from the work. It probably will be tedious. I think there will be organizations that will just build it themselves and won't pay for it, but I think they're the kind of organizations, the smaller ones, that wouldn't have paid anyway. And so I don't think Chef's going to actually lose out anything here. And it'll be very interesting to see how Amazon deals with this, whether they will just rebrand it as something or whether they'll just pay Chef to license it, which would be potentially a very good revenue stream for them and presumably what they're hoping will happen. And a great PR move by Amazon. Yeah. It would be smart for them and they could afford it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not like they can't afford it. So I don't know. I think Amazon will just make their own version of it, unfortunately, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. Well, let's move on to one of the stories that has had lots of turns, and this is the long-going lawsuit with VMware over their use of GPL code in their VMware ESX bare metal virtual machine hypervisor. Yeah, we found out this week that that lawsuit is finally over for the same reasons it was last time, and that wasn't even getting into the nuts and bolts of the argument. It was simply insufficient evidence presented to the court, or rather evidence presented in such a way that they just wouldn't accept it. Yeah, also, there appears to have been a comment by the judge during oral hearings that the judge had concerns that this was a case being brought on ideological grounds, I'm paraphrasing a bit, and suggested, because of that, that it be settled outside of court, which isn't, like, that's not a solid start to a case. And then really, this goes all the way back to 2006. So this, this already failed once. This was an appeal, and now that's failed. And VMware, by all accounts, was clearly in violation of the GPL. I believe it's Christopher Hillwig. I'm, not, I'm probably getting the pronunciation wrong there. But he spotted Linux source code being used illegally in VMware in 2006. And the way, way he put it is, Quote, VMware uses a badly hacked 2.4 kernel with a big binary blob hooked into it, giving a derived work of the Linux kernel that is not legally redistributable. And that is, I believe, true. But they failed to make a compelling argument. They failed, well, this is according to coverage in the German newspapers, which I'll have linked in the show notes. They failed to really present a solid argument. It was things like, well, here's my Git information, and... uh, Here's the get information of this and this project and just, you know, look at it. Look at it yourself. It's right there. It's just right there. I mean, that kind of stuff is not going to win a case like this. And it sets a bad precedent here. I hate to say this, but this was a huge waste of the conservancy's money. Because they were the ones behind financing this. And what do I know? But what may have been established here is now a new precedent. Essentially, if you are a minor contributor to a very large code base, say 2% of the Linux kernel is, is yours, and you have some copyright or some claim over that 2%. What the judge said here essentially is, that's not enough for you to bring this case. You have not been unduly affected enough. That is essentially precedence now, which is a massive problem for contributors of many open, large open source projects. This, is, this could potentially be a disservice to the open source free software community long term, because this is obviously... Any large corporation that's using a large project could now fight on these grounds. It's very disappointing, and it's definitely not the result we wanted to see. Well, no, it's not the result we wanted to see, and it does seem to have set that precedent in Germany, at least, but for other jurisdictions, who knows? Germany's a favorite spot, though, because often the rulings there then sort of get trickled down to all of the other Western-style nations, um, at least according to the conservancy's uh, fact. 
Uh, but I think what we have here, Joe, just just to really underscore this, is we have a proven GPL violator who just got away with it, even though they went through the court system. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not a lawyer and I don't even play one on a podcast. But yeah, my understanding is that they were in violation of the GPL and have got away with it. And they've essentially admitted as much now because VMware has released a statement saying they'll, in a future version, be removing that GPL code. And I think what we have here is we have a large player in the Linux Foundation, VMware, and we have another large player, say like Red Hat, who's in the Linux Foundation. And if you were to look at the overall Linux source code, there is a lot of Red Hat contributions and copyrights because employees of Red Hat, when they join Red Hat, sign over the copyright to the code they produce for Red Hat to the corporation. So those copyrights are all Red Hat's. Red Hat hypothetically could have a large majority of the code contribution of the Linux kernel because of this, and they would be the perfect company to then bring that to bear in court. But I believe because they're all part of the same pack, they're all part of the Let's Make Money Linux Foundation pack, nobody took action. And it was up to one individual, Christopher Hillwig, who simply was unable to go up against a megacorp who is a significant contributor to the Linux Foundation. And they clearly knew they were in violation because now they're removing that code anyways. And they got away with it. Yeah, it is very disappointing. But there's one kind of strange aspect to this. You may remember Patrick McHardy, who is another kernel contributor, and he threatened a bunch of lawsuits in Germany over this GPL compliance stuff. And he was basically just trying to shake down companies for money, profit, basically. I remember. And so he didn't get very far. Now, one of the companies that he tried to sue was, uh, I think, Genia Tech or Genia Tech, something like that. And their defense lawyer was a fellow called Till Yeager, who happens to be the person who represented Christopher in this case. So he was on the other side last time. And now he's on the side of Christopher. So you'd think that he would have enough experience to know what evidence was required and how to submit that evidence. So it's all very strange. (laughs) He's an arms dealer selling arms to both sides. (laughs) (laughs) I would never go so far as to say that. But yeah, I mean, as usual, I'm sure he made plenty of money out of this, as do all lawyers with these things. Yeah. And Conservancy are the ones who have had to foot the bill by the looks of things. Yeah, I mean, in a way, the conservancy is getting the end result they wanted. And to make to make it clear, I, I believe and take the conservancy at their word that they they attempted like hell to try to solve this thing out of court. They tried to provide solutions to VMware that they just didn't want to take. Um, and so now they've essentially gotten the result they wanted at the very beginning of all of this. It was just VMware is doing it voluntarily after getting off scot-free. And I do take them at their word that that's what they're interested in. They're not interested in making a bunch of money. They just want people to be in compliance. They don't want people to violate the license so that the whole community can benefit from the changes that they make. And so while this is disappointing, as you say, at least they did eventually get the outcome they wanted. I mean, it sounds like VMware would have just done that anyway, and they could have saved themselves a bunch of money and hassle. Well, from the enterprise to your pocket, how about this one? Running Android next to Wayland applications. What, Joe? What? Wayland on Android? What? Yeah, this is a new thing called Spurve, which runs a whole Android stack on Linux, which allows you to run, therefore, Android applications, but on Linux with Wayland, with direct hardware access and full hardware acceleration. 
Man, you just got to love all the different use cases people come up with for containers. <laughs> like, it's just, yeah. it feels like there's something every week. So this is, yeah, you take Android, you put it in a container environment, but it's a little different. Uh, it has, like Joe said, direct hardware access, and that was a choice they made for performance. Now, there are drawbacks, including some security risks, but using direct hardware access grants them increased GPU and CPU performance. So you got to think about what your use case is for something like this. Do you want to have a super secure Android environment, or do you want to run Android applications in your Linux Wayland environment with full acceleration? They have a whole device infrastructure that they've put in place. In fact, they're taking advantage of a lot of stuff that's built into Android. And they've come up with bridges. For example, like when you start up the Android container, they have a bridge that connects the virtual Android machine to your host Pulse Audio Stack. And they have a hardware compositor, which does the same thing with Wayland, creates another bridge. And they say that a lot of the underlying protocols are conceptually a lot like Wayland that they're doing, dealing with for the graphic stack. So it's pretty straightforward to then translate their hardware compositor into Wayland's protocol. And that's essentially what they have their compositor doing, is just talking Wayland, taking the Android stuff in and then talking Wayland. And they have a video on their website, and it's really slick. I mean, you got Angry Birds. What else do you need? Angry Birds, Joe. Yeah, what else do you need five years ago? But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good demonstration, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're moving it around on the Linux desktop. They got the terminal up. They got different apps up. And then, boom, here's Angry Birds. It's, it's neat. Now, this is early days. It's not kind of prime time ready yet. But a couple of things that jumped out at me from their future plans. The first one is making it work properly on x86 with Ubuntu which is interesting for a bit of kind of hacking around and, and playing with. Mm -hmm. But the really interesting one was that they want to make it work on the iMX8M with the Et Naviv graphics driver. Now, what does that mean if they get that working? Is that the Librem 5 stack? Indeed it is. Ah. So that could potentially bring Android apps to the Librem 5, which would suddenly make it a much more attractive proposition. Get F-Droid working on there and suddenly you've unlocked a whole bunch of apps. Hmm, that's some interesting uh, future casting there, Joe. That could have some nice uh, positive effects for the Librem 5. I like where they're going with this. I, I think you gotta, you got to remember, though, there is a certain amount of overhead to run an entire Android operating system just so you can use an app. Yeah. Keep in mind that that is what you're doing here. You're not, it's not like Wine, where you're just running the application and translating the application calls. You're starting up an entire Android stack in a container. Yeah, that's not going to be great for battery life, is it? And performance generally. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I wouldn't think so. Um, and, you know, it could potentially mean more security risks as well because there's a, a complete operating system stack there. Yeah, but at least it makes playing with and hacking on the Librem 5 a little bit more attractive, even if it doesn't make it more attractive from a kind of mainstream point of view. Sure, and I could also see it being handy for Android development on Linux. You know, you're developing an app, um, it wouldn't be a very good test case, but it definitely could be a great a great way while you're just building your application, getting the UI laid out. You could run it right there on your desktop. Um, that seems pretty compelling. So there's, I could see all, uh, educational use cases, all kinds of use cases for this thing. I mean, I'd play with it. Yeah, it definitely is one to watch and hopefully in the near future. But let's look back to the past of mobile development on Linux and Mer. Not Mir. But MER, <laughs> M-I-R is something different, M-E-R is something different. This week, we're talking about the M-E-R version, the mobile project. 
because this week, Mer and Selfish OS have merged. Of course, Mer was a pretty big part of Selfish OS anyway, and most of the recent contributions have come from Yola. So it's not a huge surprise that they've come together. This isn't really news that's going to impact anybody's life out there. Well, no, I shouldn't say anybody, but most of our lives. Um, but it is a fascinating story from a history standpoint. You know, Mer began many years ago really as a demonstration project. Um, then it was sort of shut down, and they shifted to Mego. And then when Mego stopped, they reincarnated Mer again. Um, and then that became essentially the core of Sailfish OS, which now Yala uses in their devices and is actually in production. It's a, it's a weird, like, twisty story, and there has been, at certain points in time in history, really incredible projects that sprung up and were very usable and then were collapsed and then merged and then reincarnated. And I guess at the end, it sort of ends up where we started. <laughs> I've spoken to some members of the UbiPorts community about this, and they had dabbled with Mer a bit previously, but are generally concentrating on Hallium now. So that was my kind of concern. Is it going to affect them? And I think the answer is not really. And the sense there was watch and wait, really. No firm conclusion as to whether this is a good or bad thing. It just seems inevitable, really, that this was going to happen because they were doing so much work on it and pretty much no one else was. So why not merge them? And even Yola themselves say that Mer has served its purpose and can retire. Right. Uh, it's it's served the community well. Uh, speaking of Ubiports, though, they have some big news. They finally have their very own official foundation. Yeah, this has been a long time coming. They've been working on it since pretty much they took over from Canonical. And it just turns out that it is very, very complicated, particularly in Germany where they've done this, to get all the paperwork sorted but now they've finally done it, they can move forward, and their finances will be a lot less stressful and, crucially, much more stable in the long term. They write in the post that we'll have linked in the notes that the foundation provides the project's benefits such as structure, new funding, and merchandising opportunities, which uh, is good for sustainability. And if you're out there and you're listening and you're kind of skeptical, you don't really see the place of UbiPorts and what the purpose is, I'd encourage you to take a couple of minutes and go read this post. They, they do a bit of a victory lap and give you a brief overview of some of the milestones that they've achieved since they took the project over on April 5th, 2017. It's pretty, it's pretty damn impressive. And they're, they're getting there in a slow, methodical, release-by-release release improvement approach. We could end up seeing, in a couple of years' time at least, a general-purpose, open-source, fully-functional, free phone operating system that uh, this community has put out. And this foundation sort of gives them the basis to keep that sustainable. Yeah, and it means that now they could do a deal with an OEM and put out an actual phone if they wanted to. Hmm, interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But that would be really cool if that, if that were to develop. Something, you know, like the Pine phone, I think is, is a group, they've worked with the Pine people a bit. Like, if you could order up a phone, even if it wasn't, daily driver. I'd love to play with something if the price was reasonable, just to get an idea where they're going and stay on top of it. Yeah, I mean, even if it could be someone like BQ, like Canonical worked with, the thing is, until they had this financial structure in place, they weren't sort of really legitimate in a way. They couldn't do those kind of deals, not easily at least, whereas now they've got that solid foundation and they could potentially do deals like that. And 
realistically, not much is actually going to change beyond perceptions. But the thing is, perceptions are very important, and it makes them seem legit now. Yeah, especially when they're dealing with commercial OEMs. Like, that's that's critical, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, congratulations to them. It's just cool to see them uh, tick on. The only thing is, though, it doesn't have enough blockchain, Joe. Oh, yeah, definitely everything needs more blockchain. And uh, the EU strikes again. This time they've launched the Blockchain Association. Oh, yeah. This is a big deal. The International Association of Trusted Blockchain Applications has grown out of months of forums and roundtables held by the commission to create a strategy around emerging technology. As the adoption of blockchain, they write, continues across a wide range of sectors, the European Commission has made a priority to study the potential impact and encouraging it across a number of initiatives. A <laughs> hundred organizations in this. <laughs> yeah, well, it kind of goes to show that it's not just about Bitcoin. We've talked a few times mm. about how blockchain technology and distributed ledgers are not just about cryptocurrencies. It's way more than that. It's really boring stuff like shipping and distribution and logistics. And there's certain areas where it just really shines as essentially a distributed database. Right. It's a distributed ledger or a database that is verifiable by crypto. And so that means even competing companies or banks that don't trust each other can rely on the information, assuming it's a sound implementation. But, you know, I was looking at the organizations that were involved. Anheuser-Busch, the Bud Light Company, <laughs> one, of the, one, one, one of the, I guess maybe shipping. Uh, you know, they, they got to ship a lot of beer, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They got to ship a lot of ingredients and beer and everything and yeah, it, it just totally makes sense for these companies to adopt this technology. And whenever you have got billions of dollars in an industry, you need to have these organizations that oversee it and that these members will come together and cooperate in. And it just goes to show that this stuff has been really taken seriously now. Do you think it adds like commercial legitimacy? Um, you know, in the eyes of corporations that might want to be implementing blockchain? Definitely, yeah. I think that, like with the Ubiports thing, perceptions are very important. And even if nothing really changes in practical terms, just having this organization in place does give the whole industry and the whole area of the industry of blockchain credibility. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. It's sort of a, it's sort of a stamp of approval that we recognize this as a business technology. And, uh, boy... Corporations love that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you're going to see more and more companies adopt this technology because it actually does serve a very important purpose. It's not exciting like running Android apps on Wayland or whatever, <laughs> but it's just the, the plumbing, the nuts and bolts of how the globalized economy is actually going to work going into the 22nd century. Yeah, I think... Where I still kind of get like a little bit of, as we would say here in the States, heebie-jeebies from these kind of stories is blockchain is kind of like cloud now. It, it's really all in the details. How are they verifying those transactions? Is it truly distributed? Is it under the control of one corporation or one government entity? Like All of the implementation details are really what matter when it comes to blockchain technology. And we just get this generic blockchain description, 
which is supposed to invoke some sort of impress, oh, they're using crypto. But I'm left thinking, you know, they, if they don't have the right verification system, then it, it's, it, it doesn't matter. It's, just, it's, it's worthless. And, of course, they don't go into the details. Are they going to be setting up servers, crunching crypto in data centers? Have they come up with a different, less CPU or GPU-intensive way to verify that's still just as cryptographically sound and can't be hacked? Like, what are the details here? We don't know. It's just blockchain. Well, I suppose it's a bit like cloud. That can mean anything from one VM that you've rented and resold to AWS and everything in between. And it is all in the implementation details. But I like to think that this association will set some standards and answer some of those questions. Yeah, fair point. That would actually be a really good use of a commission like this. Like that's, I think that would be... That's a great idea. I'm going to watch and see, um, because that does seem to be the critical part. And perhaps perhaps maybe that some sort of consensus can be reached if there is a, a government regulation of some effect in place. Interesting, you know, because the technology moves so fast, so that's going to be challenging for them to keep up with. But uh, I'm sure the EU is up to the challenge, right, Joe? I would hope so. <laughs> and it's funny that the, uh, the image used to illustrate this is a bunch of interconnected lines um, of the, the map of the EU. And you can see that Switzerland's missing in the middle. But uh, then there's the UK off, off the coast of France. Hasn't been deleted just yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a big blockchain update. Lots of verification. Well, in the meantime, we'll have more stories every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you're a full-stack Ruby on Rails developer, check out linuxacademy.com slash careers. They are hiring for full-time remote positions for full-stack Ruby on Rails developers. Also, just a quick plug skis for Linux Fest Northwest coming up very soon at the end of this month. We're going to all be there. And we'd love to see you. We'll have tons of Jupiter Broadcasting talks going on. We'll have a booth. We'll have a live stream. Joe and I will be there. It'll be a great time. LinuxFestNorthwest.org for more information and meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for our parking lot barbecue details. And just a quick shout out to Cheese Bacon, the newest member of our Jupiter Broadcasting team, who has done an absolutely fantastic job working with the Linux Academy art department to do all of the art assets all the new logos, they're all looking fantastic. Yeah, the new art is sharp. Check out the new dark theme, too, over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Yeah, the design team and Mr. Bacon did a great job. Now, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at John Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. See you later.